Praise the Lord. The rest of you, I would like you to open up your Bibles, if you would, to Philippians chapter 2. We are continuing in our series through Paul's letter to the Philippians. And we reach a pivotal passage, not only in this letter, but in the New Testament as a whole. And I want to just uh, ask for God's blessing on our time together before we look at this. Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity that we've had today to worship you, to lift our voices and sing our praises to you. Thank you, Father God, for the various ministries in our church and how they are helping people to learn and to grow and to be equipped. And Father God, thank you for the answers to prayer that we are experiencing in this church body, Father God. And we give you thanks and praise for those. And now we ask that you will bless us, Father, as we look at your word, open our hearts to receive from you, open our minds to understand. Help us by your spirit, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. This passage that we are going to look at today deals with the incarnation of the Son. Incarnation means to become flesh. The incarnation, God becoming a human being, is without a doubt the central miracle of Christianity. And as Pastor Don said, it is unique to Christianity. The miracle of miracles is the central theme of this text that we're going to look at today. Philippians 2 verses 5 through 8. Many scholars believe that this text, verses 5 through 11, which is written by Paul in this letter, was originally a poem or a hymn sung by early Christians to celebrate the incarnation of of the Son of God. It has been called a Christological gem or a theological diamond, a pinnacle of profound theological truth. These are perhaps the most important seven verses found in all the writings of Paul. This brief but profound text is one of the fullest and most explicit descriptions in the entire New Testament regarding the identity of our Redeemer, Christ Jesus. So I'd like you to stand for the reading of our text. I'm going to read the entire section here, Philippians 2, 5 through 11. May God bless the reading of his word to us. This is the word of God, Philippians 2. 2 verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You may be seated. Praise God. As profound as this passage is theologically, it is also ethical. It is primarily designed to motivate Christians to think and live like our Lord and Savior did. Paul is not merely describing the incarnation to reveal its theological truths as magnificent as those are. Instead, he is presenting to us the supreme example of humility to serve as the most powerful motive for us as Christians to humble ourselves. The humility of the Son of God calls all believers to follow His example. His example of self-denial, self-giving, self-sacrifice, and selfless love. So verse 5 serves as a transition from Paul's exhortations in the previous verses to an illustration, the supreme illustration of how this is done. As we saw last Sunday, he called all Christians in verses 3 and 4 to do nothing from rivalry or empty conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each one of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. This was Paul's exhortation to the Christians in Philippi and through them to all Christians everywhere, even to us today. And remember the goal that started this passage, the goal is spiritual unity in the church, that we would together stand firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. This is what Paul wanted for the Philippians and for all Christians, including us. So Paul wants his readers to have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. He wants us to have the same mind or the same mindset that the Son of God had, that Jesus had. He wants us to follow Christ's example of love, of humility, and of sacrifice for the sake of others. So today we'll look at the first four verses of this text, which will tell us who the Son is, who the Son became, and how the Son humbled Himself. Who the Son is, what the Son became, and how the Son humbled Himself. So let's start with who is the Son. 
Look at verse 6 with me. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Paul states here categorically that the Son was in the form of God. Was in here is a present active participle. And that indicates continuance of existence. So we could more accurately state it this way. He has always existed in the form of God. He has always been God. Existed in the very form of God. And this is this word form here is translated from the Greek word morphe which refers to the inner nature or substance of something, not merely its outward appearance. He didn't just appear to be God. He is God. The very form of God. He has eternally existed, therefore, in the divine nature of God. And thus, he will always continue to exist as God. This is exactly what we also read in the opening verses of the Gospel of John. You're all familiar with John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, but let me remind you. John writes, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now, I underlined each of these was's in these verses Because was here translates the Greek verb that's in the imperfect tense. That's not a tense we have in English, but it's a tense that they had in the Greek language. In the Greek, it's the imperfect tense. And that that tense indicates continuous action in the past. Continuous action in the past. So... If you were to plug in that form in English, which we wouldn't say it this way because it sounds funny, but it's more accurate to what the Greek tells us. This is the way it would read. In the beginning had been the word and the word had been with God and the word had been God. He had been in the beginning with God. Meaning that he had always been God. And continues to be. And then in John 1.14, John tells us who this word was. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. So this This one who had always been God became something that he was not before. He took on flesh. He became a human being. He dwelt among us. And he is the only son from the father full of grace and truth. So the son of God became flesh in the incarnation. He took on flesh so who the son is he is God 
This profound truth is repeated over and over again in Scripture. Jesus will state that he is one with the Father. He will tell Philip that whoever has seen me has seen the Father. And he will accept Thomas's identification of him as my Lord and my God. Matthew introduces Christ as Emmanuel, which means God with us. Paul describes him in his letter to the Colossians as the image of the invisible God. No one has seen the Father at any time, but the Son we have seen, and he is the exact image of God in human form. And the writer of the Hebrews tells us that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. So, the Son is God. Amen? Now, Paul goes on in verse 6 to tell us that the Son did not count equality with God to be a, a thing to be grasped. Once again, God's Word acknowledges that before becoming a man, the Son possessed equality with God. The Son is not a lesser God or a lesser form of God. He has equality with the Father because they are of one essence, of one being. Nothing is equal to God except for God. Let me say that again. Nothing is equal to God except for God. And so when he says he was equal with God, he was equal with God. The Son is not a lesser God or a lesser form of God. He is fully God, always has been God, always will be. Yet, he did not count or consider equality with God a thing to be grasped or to be held on to. He was willing to let go of his exalted position in heaven with the Father in order to become a human being. It's mind-boggling. It's, it's truly beyond our comprehension. Uh, the finite cannot comprehend the infinite. And this is, this is an infinite act of humility. The Son being fully God did not insist on holding on to all of the privileges and benefits of His exalted position in heaven. He was willing to give up that position in order to fulfill His calling to become fully man, to come down from heaven to earth, to dwell among sinful men, to fulfill the requirements of the covenant of grace. To provide salvation for all of those chosen by the Father. It is this same attitude of selfless giving of oneself. And selfless giving of our possessions, our power, our privileges. That really should characterize all who are followers of Christ. The Son is God. But the Son chose 
to become a human being. The Greek word that is here translated in verse 7, let's look at verse 7, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. The Greek word here that is translated emptied himself or made himself nothing is the Greek word echinosin. What does that mean? Well, it literally means poured himself out. So when you pour out a pitcher, you can be saying that you're emptying that pitcher. But you're pouring it into something else. And the son poured out his divine nature into the body of flesh and blood. He became something that he was not before. He was not eternally a human being. He was eternally God. But he became a human being. His divine nature was now concealed by his human form. And this is exactly what Paul tells us in his letter to the Colossians. Listen to what Paul writes. In him, that is in Jesus, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Or as we read earlier, John writes, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So God the Son became something that he was not before. He became a human being. Granted, a perfect human being, a human being without sin, but still fully human while remaining fully God. But Paul takes it one step further. Note here, Paul writes, the son took on the form of a servant. The word here in the Greek, doulos, actually means slave. Jesus not only became a human being, Jesus took on the role of being a slave. He who was Lord of all, he who was creator of all of creation, was born as a slave. A slave first and foremost to the Father. One who would perfectly obey the will of the Father. One who would only do what pleased the Father. He would perfectly obey the Father in all things at all times and thereby earning for us perfect righteousness. Something we are absolutely incapable of. He earned that for us to make him eligible to be our perfect redeemer. So the son became a human being through the power of the Holy Spirit coming upon the Virgin Mary. The divine nature of the son was supernaturally poured out into the human being created into the wo- in the womb of Mary, the one we know as Jesus. He would experience a humble birth, and a humble upbringing as a child and then as a young man in Nazareth. 
He would experience growing up in a sin-filled world like all other human beings, experiencing their emotions, their pain, their needs. And he would be tempted in all ways, even as we are, but without sin. And he would endure all of this, not for himself. He did not need to do this for himself. He did this for the sake of others. Becoming the supreme example for us of what it means to give your life for others. To live your life for others. To put others before ourselves. And then in verse 8, Paul goes on to describe the extent of the son's humbling himself. Look at verse 8 with me. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Not only does the Son of God humble himself by becoming a human being, I mean, that in and of itself is just beyond our comprehension. That he would leave heaven, his exalted place, being worshipped by all of the heavenly creatures and beings. And he would come down to live a lowly life as a middle class son of a carpenter in the small town of Nazareth. But not only did he do that, but he further humbled himself by becoming obedient and listen to me obedient to all of those placed in authority over him think about that for a minute this is the son of God God himself the creator of the universe and he is going to place himself under the authority of sinful human beings and submit to their authority perfectly. The God of the universe submitted himself to the authority of his parents, his teachers, the Jewish authorities, and even to the authority of the Roman authorities who were the occupiers of his nation. He, the sinless one, placed himself under the rule and authority of sinful human beings, and he did so perfectly without sin in thought or in deed. This is astounding. Think about it for a second. We might submit to authority, Because we have to. But we don't always do it willingly. And we don't always do it without sin. At least in our thoughts. Right? 
But Jesus did. He lived a life of perfect obedience while remaining perfectly humble and other-centered. As he was being persecuted, mocked, made fun of by his own people, by the Jewish authorities, he did not say to them, I created you. Who are you to speak to me this way? He didn't even think that. He lived a life of perfect obedience to God, a life without sin, a life of perfect love and perfect humility. Now, we did a study, uh, gentle and lowly, and it opened some of our eyes to just how gentle and lowly, humble Jesus was. And then the study surprised by Jesus just reinforced that, that he would reach out to those that no one would have anything to do with. It is through this life of perfect active obedience that he was able to earn the righteousness required to be our perfect redeemer, our spotless sacrifice to pay for our sins and for the sins of all of those chosen by the Father for salvation. But to do that, he had to humble himself even further, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. How far was the Son of God willing to go to secure the salvation of his chosen ones? He was willing to be absolutely humiliated in his arrest, his trials, and his crucifixion. He was mocked. He was falsely accused. He was spat upon. He was beaten. He was scourged. He was forced to carry his own cross until he could not. He was stripped naked and nailed to the cross and suffered and died an agonizing death. But nothing compared to the suffering of the wrath of God that was poured out upon him for our sins. It pleased the Father to crush him, the scripture tells us, under the weight of his wrath because Jesus became sin for us. Yet, Jesus was never defensive, never bitter, never demanding, never accusing, never struck back. Throughout all of his suffering, he humbled himself. He humbled himself. He humbled himself, refusing to assert his rights as God or even as an innocent human being. Instead, he humbled himself and willingly sacrificed himself, counting others as more significant than himself, looking not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. This is the ultimate expression of humility. 
This is the servant king. 2 Corinthians 5.21, we read these important words. God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus not only took our sin upon himself and paid it in full, but we who trust in him for salvation are then credited by the Father with the Son's perfect righteousness, with the Son's perfect obedience. We are treated as an adopted child of God. You know, this is just, again, it's mind-boggling, isn't it? You know, how difficult is it for us to love our enemy? How difficult it is for us to love those who persecute us? And yet, the Bible tells us that every one of us were at one time enemies of God. Right? The Bible tells us all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All. Every man, woman, boy, and girl. From Adam until now. Fall short of the perfection that's required to have a personal relationship with God. And the penalty for that sin is death. Not just physical death, but spiritual death. And eternal conscious punishment from God. That's the penalty. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen? Praise God. Maybe you didn't hear me. The gift of life is eternal. I'm sorry. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Him. But Romans 10 also tells us that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. If you have not yet done that, I pray that you would do that today. Call upon Jesus who suffered and died for you. Call upon him for the salvation that every one of us needs. Trust in him and in him alone. He humbled himself. He took my sin upon himself. He bore the wrath of God due for my sin so that those sins would be paid in full and I would be credited with his perfect righteousness. He did that for me and for everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord for salvation. He humbled himself. And in the context of this letter, that is the message. He humbled himself, and Paul wants the Christians in Philippi to do the same. And God wants us to do the same. That's why we have this letter. He wants 
Christians to follow the example of our Lord and Savior. God is teaching the unexpected lesson that our highest privilege is to humble ourselves. That our highest privilege is to please our Lord by living as He lived. Living for the sake of others. He did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life. So whatever it might cost us now to put our own interests, comforts, and goals in second place behind the needs of others, in the end, we will find that we have lost nothing of eternal value. In fact, as we live not to please ourselves, but to please God through loving others and sacrificing ourselves for them, we will have the great joy of becoming more and more like Jesus. Until one day we see him face to face. And we hear those amazing words. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into your rest. And there is nothing that compares to that. Nothing. Nothing on this earth compares to that. That is what we should look forward to. The God we serve served us. Our king became a servant and gave his life for us. And Paul says, let us follow that example. Let us humble ourselves and give our lives in the service of others. Next week, we'll look at the exaltation of the Son. We'll finish this passage. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for this opportunity just to take a brief look at this incredible passage. Thank you, Father God, for your spirit moving upon the Apostle Paul to write these seven verses for us that encapsulate the miracle of the incarnation. Perhaps the miracle of all miracles, that God himself would become like us so that we could one day become like him. Thank you, Father God, for giving your son. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for humbling yourself and coming and taking our place upon that cross. And thank you for your Holy Spirit who indwells us and empowers us now to live our lives in a manner that pleases and glorifies you. And we do this by humbling ourselves and putting others' needs before our own. Help us in this, I pray, Father God, that others will see your people, and they will see Christ in us, and they will want what we have. And then give us opportunities, Father, to give all the glory to you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.